Heavenly Father, thank you for the fellowship that we have as described in 1 John chapter 1. We have fellowship with you because of what you did for us through your Son and the fact that his blood continually cleanses us from all sin as we walk in the light, as we confess that we are sinners and we need the blood. And we have fellowship with one another, as it says also in that same passage. And we thank you for that. And as we open the scriptures up together, may you give us wisdom and understanding and applications so that the Word of God might dwell in our hearts richly and cause grace to be mediated to us that would change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we have an opportunity again to study from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. In this section, we find out what Paul taught about money and giving. We are now on verse 16. Last week we were talking about the quotation from the Septuagint of Exodus 16:18. So in a, in a sense that the manna was there for all of the Israelites and that they didn't need to hoard because if they did it wouldn't do them any good anyhow. It would get rotten. And there was enough for everybody. And so Paul is making an application by analogy And by analogy, as the church would be giving and generous, that those who had an abundance would be generous with those who lacked, that there would be a similar situation where everyone's need was met. I had a citation that I don't think... Did I read the one from Garland about why this was so important to Paul? I don't know if I did. Did I? About, did you remember? I was, uh, yeah, the Gentiles. About his, his bigger concern, if I read that, then I'll just summarize it. His biggest concern was still a gospel-centric concern. It's not that he wasn't concerned for the physical well-being of the Christians in Judea, because he certainly was, but an even a more important concern to him was the unity of the gospel and that the church would not be divided into two entirely different segments, one that's Jewish, that does things their way, and another that's Gentile, that that would be totally different. Because as we know from Ephesians 2, God is making one new man, and he's torn down the dividing wall of partition. I had a historical question. Okay. Because he was writing that before... Jerusalem fell, so you had James and the church in Jerusalem that was a, really the birthplace of Christianity. After Jerusalem fell, how, what, is there any transition from being primarily a Jewish church expanding to the Gentiles to being primarily a Gentile church, and when did that transition happen? Because by the time you have Rome, you know, in 400 with Constantine, it seems to be the Jewish portion is very small. Well, that's true. There was, there was some continuity. I need to look this up before, before in a couple of weeks from now. I, hopefully I can find it on the Internet so I don't have to go to the seminary library. But they had these succession lifts, uh, and there was one in Antioch, and I think in Alexandria, and there was one in what became Constantinople, 
what was it in the first century? Byzantia? Yeah. And they had succession lists of bishops. And there were some churches that were more toward a Jewish part of it in the Middle East there. But certainly Jerusalem became not a factor after 70 AD or not a big factor as far as the church was concerned. And you had the martyrdom of James that was written about by Josephus, if you remember that. And Josephus himself thought the martyrdom of James was an outrage. But, but did, did the synagogues themselves, when Jerusalem fell, did the synagogues throughout the Roman Empire, did they come under persecution and disappear as well? No, not exactly. There were still synagogues, and the main Jewish, the Jewish part of it, became, interestingly, centered more on Babylon. Because the Talmud that's quoted is the Babylonian Talmud. And most of that was done... The captivity period. You know. Yeah. So most of that was done around 200 A.D. or by 200 to 250. This Talmud is developed, and, and there's a Jerusalem Talmud and a Babylonian one, but the biggest one and the most quoted one is the Babylonian one. Now, Jerusalem wasn't totally uh, devoid of Jews after 70 A.D. The, the bigger persecution that ended Jewish, heavy Jewish influence in Jerusalem and in Israel was in 135, the Bar-Kochiba revolt. And then uh, Hadrian came in and just totally wiped out, said, all right, that's it. We're not going to have any more of these revolts. And he went in and totally destroyed any Jewish hope of being in a homeland until 1948. So 135 to 1948. But as far as the church maintaining a segment that was Jewish, it really didn't happen. By the time of the councils, the, actually, sadly, by the time of the councils in the 4th century, the church had turned against the Jews, partly because of Constantine. Constantine himself was anti-Semitic. And if you read um, Eusebius's account of Constantine's address, to the Nicene Council, he was just railing against the Jews. Origen, before that, the church father Origen, who I consider heretical, had rejected millennial, any millennial reign. All the early church fathers believed in a literal millennium centered in Jerusalem. And I have an article about that where I cite each one that even mentions it. But Origen rejected that idea on the grounds that it was too material and too Jewish because Origen was sort of a platonic mystic. He, he was the one who invented the whole allegorical method. He's like 100 and some AD, so it's pretty close. At, was he? To something. So 200 years after the death. Yeah. So as I did my research, and I did a lot of reading in the Church Fathers when I was in seminary and before, I think the turning point was Origen. He was the first one I found that turned against anything that might be considered Jewish. Eusebius shared those sentiments, the early church historian. And then uh, Augustine invented amillennialism that said that the entire church age is the millennium. And you didn't hear a lot of premillennial teaching for uh, until a couple hundred years after the Reformation. Yes. Uh, did Origen have anything to do with replacement theology or preterism? Well, that, that wasn't discussed at, uh, in the terms that we're talking about. Uh, was he, the influence there, do you think? I don't know. All I know, my quote that I found from Origen was, the church was becoming mystic 
and you already had this idea that being married was a lesser thing, all right, and that human sexuality was evil even within marriage, and so you start getting these uh, ascetics that are transgressing what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. And so, or, well, Origen actually emasculated himself, okay? It's try, that, that was his way of trying to get away from the lust of the flesh. And this guy was really whacked. He believed in the reconciliation, ultimately, of the devil. Um, he believed in uh, all kinds of weird things. And so the idea, what was offensive to Origen was the idea that there's going to be a millennial reign of Christ with people actually marrying and procreating, because to him that was a bad thing in this weird way of thinking, this sort of a platonic a mystic thing. So, so bringing it back to what we're talking about in Corinthians, Paul was worried at the time he's writing this of a division between a Jewish church mm-hmm. and a Christian church. And but well, 150 years later in the 200s, by the time of origin, we have a Gentile church that's rejecting Jewish, anything, anything Jewish whatsoever. It, so that, that yeah. that's migrated, and you don't have yeah. any record then of a Jewish Christianity from that time on, really. Not really much. Maybe a few remnants here and there. So that's what happened. Okay, now let's get to our passage here, 2 Corinthians 8.16. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. Now probably here the same earnestness as to what Paul has. And in this whole section here, 16 through 24, Paul is commending Titus and two others who likely brought this particular letter, 2 Corinthians, to Corinth. So this word earnestness is also used in 8.7 and in 8.8. 8.7 and 8.8, earnestness. The word there, spude, means haste or zeal or zealous effort. Thanks is interesting. Here's our word again, charis, the word for grace. That's our theme in this section is grace. But charis, thanks be to God who puts this zeal on your behalf and heart of Titus. So Titus shares Paul's zeal. Titus had brought back the good report to Paul from Corinth. And now they're ready to go forward with the offering because um, there is a restoration, at least of most of the Corinthians, to being, in a, to being willing to listen to Paul and not the super apostles who were his critics. Linda, could you look up Philippians 2, 20 and 21? For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will generally be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. That's an interesting passage, all right? He says, I have no one else because they are all seeking their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, we lament the situation in the church today, do we not? How lamentable is it? Well, it's so lamentable that when people call from all over the country and all over the world saying, where can I go to church? We can say the same thing that Paul did. We have no one else. They all look after their own interests rather than the interests of Christ. And the stories that we hear from, the horror stories from persons, are saying the same thing. 
the, the leadership of our church has only cared about their own interests. They only care about their own ego. They only care about their own authority and power. They only care about their own whatever it is that they're into. And the, the, the interests of Jesus Christ, which would be, Jesus says, feed my sheep. The interest of Jesus Christ is the welfare of his flock, of his church. We need to remember that this is the Lord's church, not some man's church. And so there must be something about human nature that leads to that situation, because if it was true in Paul's day that they're all looking after their own interests, it's, it's kind of shocking, but it's, it's true in our day. So what is the warning uh, that we should heed about this? And if you look at church history, it's been true through most of church history that the leadership of the church ends up looking after their own interests rather than those of Jesus Christ. Well, I think that the more I look at the situation, it underscores the need for listening to Paul concerning the qualifications of elders. I think it's absolutely essential. In fact, there's nothing that would be more important in the welfare of any given local church because the thing that destroys churches is bad leadership. And And the way you get bad leadership is somehow... Well, there's a couple of ways that it happens. Number one, the founding person. See, in the case of Paul, remember last week, Mike Gendron based his message on Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. Well, Paul was the founding person for that particular church, and Paul's the one who ministered to these elders and gave them instructions so that they would be able to care for the flock according to the Lord Jesus' concerns and intention. So the first thing that's necessary is whoever's doing the teaching and preaching to start with as the church is developing, if they're teaching and preaching clear, solid scripture from a good attitude and, and, and good motives, the Lord will raise up elders in that church because the, the people will be the sort of people that admire those sort of qualities being, uh, that, that are found in second, excuse me, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus and so on. Um, And the other thing is that we need to constantly be under the authority of Scripture, all of us, all leaders and all persons, so that we're seeking God together and we're not allowing the sort of personal self-interest to come into the church because that's the poison pill. It's absolutely a poison pill when you have leaders in a church that are doing things out of self-interest. Okay. Like it, isn't there a parallel between that and when Jesus is talking to his disciples and said the Gentiles, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, but it shall not be the case with you. Mm-hmm. So when we have a leadership that is looking after their self-interest, we have a secular or a worldly leadership based on the, what Jesus was talking about, the leaders of the Gentiles. You no longer have a Christian leadership. It's an anti-Christian leadership that would do that. Right. And the same thing happened in Israel. Look at the shepherds of Israel that Jesus laments over. And he looks at the people and he sees their sheep without a shepherd. Why? Because the shepherds of Israel were apostate. They were looking after their own interest. Okay, so having a Titus here is a wonderful blessing. It's a wonderful, wonderful blessing to have a Titus because Paul could trust him that Titus going to the Corinthians doesn't have Titus's agenda. He has the Lord's agenda. And the Lord's agenda is the welfare of his own flock. That's absolutely bottom line. You know, earlier we were talking about the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem and the, Paul's concern for this offering in order to make sure there's one church and not two churches. And you can see the danger of that 
was already happening in Paul's day because remember in Galatians 2, how these, remember the, the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came and Peter would not eat with Gentiles once those people? It didn't it say from James? What does it say there? Yeah, they came from James. So James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And, and these Jewish Christians came. And even there, Peter himself was, you know, cowering uh, and saying, well, I better withdraw from these Gentiles because these, these Jewish Christians may not appreciate that I'm meeting with the Gentiles. So already there was, and Paul rebuked him to his face. Because already here's this danger that you have a split church. A Jewish church that follows Moses and Christ, and a Gentile church that's different. All right, let's go to verse 17. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Uh, the word accepted, dekomai, means welcomed. It's a, it's a word that means uh, welcoming with uh, warmth and um, a positive desire to, to, to do so. And, but he himself was a, a very earnest. It was a positive response. It was immediate and it was voluntary. Paul didn't have to try to talk him into it because Titus has as much love and concern for the Corinthians as Paul does and he's more than motivated to go and to be... Um, doing a work of God on behalf of Paul and for the gospel and for the benefit of both the Corinthian church and the church of Judea. Now we have the term same earnestness in verse 16. Then we have a ver- adjective form of the same word spaude in verse 17. So there's a repetition of that particular word for earnestness. Earnestness. In verse 18 says we have sent a along with them, a brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Now here is probably talking about the churches of Macedonia. There's no name given, but here was someone who had fame in the things of the gospel. How would one have fame in the things of the gospel? What do you think those qualities would be? Certainly taking one for the team, for the sake of the gospel. Okay. Is willing to take one for the team? Yeah, I, I, we were, I think that we were all blessed last weekend when we had Mike Gendron, right? Well, I would think of him as somebody like that, okay? I would feel very safe sending someone to him saying, here's a guy you can go talk to. Here's a guy that's gonna, that, that you can count on. Why? Because I see that as fame in the things of the gospel. Mike Gendron goes all over the world, and wherever he goes, you can count on that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. And names his ministry, Proclaiming the Gospel. So that's what I, to me, fame in the things of the gospel is, is what's true about someone who the gospel is everything to them. And, and nothing's more important. Yes? In the New King James here, uh, the passage reads in verse 18, And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. Okay, whose praise is in the gospel. So, I don't know how I missed this for so many years. I was thinking about this just uh, Friday when I was looking, thinking about preaching a sermon and about the Ten Commandments and about the gospel. And 
I was thinking also back uh, some years ago, the first 15, almost probably at least 15 years of my Christian life when I first became converted and then went on. How was I, I th- here's what I was thinking. How was it that all those years I was reading the same New Testament and I never noticed how important the gospel was? Honestly, I'm just burying my heart. I really didn't. I kept noticing the word gospel all the time because Paul keeps talking about it. But I couldn't understand. It just didn't weigh heavily enough on me how important that was to Paul. Because my thinking for those 15 years from 1971 to 1986 was that the gospel was only something of interest to somebody who you would have to lead in the sinner's prayer. And then once you got that behind you, then you go on to something else. Yeah, something really important. And so, some, some, and literally our, our um, procedure, and this was my procedure for years, if somebody new came along and I was talking to them, I'd ask them the question, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Yes or no? And if they said yes, fine. If they said no, then I'd say, are you willing to pray this prayer? Okay. And I'd kind of tell them the prayer. And then they'd pray it. And then as soon as they did that, okay, now on to what we really are all about. Whatever that happened to be, that kept changing as the new fads came through the church. You know, it, it kept, you did what we're all about. This could have been anything at the moment. Now, I'm ashamed that I was like that for 15 years. I'm ashamed that it took me that long for the Lord to get through to me that the gospel isn't just one thing, it's everything. Okay? And when Paul's talking about this, he's not, just keep, he's not always talking about gospel, 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 just to be redundant. He's talking about it because it's everything for him. Yes, go ahead. Um, John MacArthur had the same experience that when he was in seminary, he didn't... It shocked him, as he looked back many years, how much he had to um, protect the gospel and defend it, and it never went away. And, and when he was in seminary, he didn't think he'd have to spend that much time with the gospel after he got out. And I think a lot of us have had similar experiences. As you grow in grace and you know the gospel more and more, you start to see the attack on it more and more. Uh-huh. And you awaken to that. You start to protect that naturally. Amen. Amen. And the, well, I'm going to talk about it in my sermon a little bit. We're going to do the Ten Commandments, but I'm only doing one of them. Um, And I'll talk about that. But if you, for instance, I was reading Luther this last week, and Luther continually went back to justification by faith. It didn't matter what topic he was on. I was reading his diatribe against the iconoclasts. The, the heavenly prophets. And they, the heavenly prophets were on a mission from God to smash all the idols that they saw around, which was any kind of an image. And Luther said no to them. And he went back to justification by faith. He's always talking about justification by faith because that's the gospel. Now, um, that's why for Paul, the greatest here in this verse, fame in the things of the gospel, he can't think of any higher accommodation. Now, why send along a guy whose fame is in the things of the gospel when it says in verse 9 that the point of it was a proper administration of a monetary situation? 
You would think if you wanted a proper administration of something monetary, you'd find the best businessman. Okay, now come on, think with me here. You would think, well, here's a guy who uh, was proven in his ability to raise money. And he knows how to take that money and multiply it and do things with money. So listen, here's the guy that we're going to send for proper administration of a monetary gift. No, Paul did not send a businessman. He sent somebody whose fame was in the gospel. Why? Because the issue with money that causes the biggest problems in churches is not people's ability to make and manage money. It's people's moral issues. Okay? It's people's motivations. Okay? And so somebody whose fame is in the gospel is not likely to get waylaid by having to administrate money. He's going to make sure it gets to where it needs to go. Yes? That his fame in the gospel was consistent with his confession, the confession being what he preached and the confession being what he lived. So he would live what was consistent with that, which meant he could take care of other people's money. He wouldn't have to, to mistrust him or, or distrust him. The whole concept Absolutely. was he could trust him because he was consistent with the message that he preached. Right. Troy. And by the way, have you noticed in the paper how many times just in the last six months, just in our city, have we had people indicted in high-profile cases who were supposedly Christians? All right. Millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. And we've had case after case after case where these Christians were found you know, mishandling money. And their fame was in their ability to raise money. Their fame wasn't in the things of the gospel. And you go talk to one of these Christians who's got an investment opportunity for you, what they will try to do is prove to you how much money they have to make you trust them. So they'll have a big fancy car, or maybe they'll have a private airplane, or they'll have a huge house, or all of the above, and they'll show those things to you, and they'll say, I know how to make money, and I'm a Christian. So you can trust me with your money. And wh- what happened to the, all those people's money? You went to big planes and big houses. <laughs> a good point. So that's not somebody whose fame is in the gospel. That's somebody whose fame is in money. Now, you know what is the absolute... <laughs> it's really, really sad, but this is true so much in America. And we're a very wealthy con- country, and we are so even when we're doing badly like we're doing right now is that if you look at the elder boards of churches in evangelical churches, they will be populated with businessmen. Now, I'm not saying being a businessman disqualifies somebody, but it certainly doesn't qualify them, all right? Because that's, that's not a qualification other than that they have a good reputation of those without, but being rich isn't the kind of good reputation Paul's talking about. And so it, we got this backwards. We think if we've got a money issue, we've got to talk about people... We've got to bring in people that that's what they do. Paul has a money issue. He brings in somebody who's famous in the gospel. Yes. Well, that's been my observation, too, is, you know, through 19 years of going from one church to another, I think if, uh, if the pastor's faithful, and you probably said this many times, I know you have, but uh, if you stick with the gospel, you know, and what is the Bible? The gospel's throughout the Bible. Um, everything else will take care of itself. Like you said, you will have elders, you will have people that uh, 
can distribute the money and, and operate uh, with integrity. Exactly. And, and if you do have a scandal, you know how to deal with it because you've got a Matthew 18, Patrick. I think you're right. I mean, it, it is tempting to look at certain uh, businessmen or certain other measures of, of earthly success and, and favor that. We want to favor that because, hey, look, this person has it together. This person really uh, knows what they're doing in life. But that doesn't equate to having a, a thorough knowledge and, in the gospel and having Christ-centeredness. Um, it might have had that appearance because we think, oh, this person seems to be working well in society and seems to come here every week and is good at organizing things. But that's not the heart of the issue. Amen. Yeah, absolutely. James talks about this. So this isn't a new problem. It was evidently one that James had to address in the first century. In James chapter 2. Do you want to turn to that? James 2. And starting with verse 1. So we've got to be very careful not to gravitate to people that look like they have something to offer us. Okay? It's human nature to be tempted to do that, but we've got to be very careful about that. Who has something to offer me? No, that's not the issue. Let me, let me just read it. James 2, starting with verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism to one. For if a man comes into your assembly, verse 2, with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who's wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is, not the, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they, do, not, do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are following the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. So there's a warning in James against showing partiality based on financial status. Wine and dine the rich guy because he might make a big donation for your church. And then... Make him an elder because he's got a lot of money. And if he was on the elder board, he could see how much problems we have and he could bail us out of them. It's not the, it's not the pattern. So we're, we're being warned, we're being forewarned, and this, if this was a problem in the first century, how much more so can we consider it likely a problem in the 21st century? And it was a problem throughout church history. It was a huge problem. Did any more of you listen to those MacArthur CDs on Rome? They're good, aren't they? <laughs> They're very good. I didn't lie. They are very good. But he was talking about the re- one of the reasons for creating this need for celibacy and not allowing the, the priest to marry was the fact that they didn't want them to accumulate wealth because they were some of the wealthiest people in the Middle Ages was the church prelates, prelates and, and leaders. MacArthur was talking about that, was he not? Who else listened to it? Yeah, he was, wasn't he? 
Yeah. And so they said, well, if these guys can't have any air, then the church will get all their wealth when they die and won't have to worry about them nepotism or anything because they won't have any children. Yes, go ahead. I was just thinking when you were talking about favoritism, it was reminding me of the verse uh, that says that the Lord has withheld these things from the learned and wise and revealed them unto babes. It seems like the f- one of the favorite things of the Lord to do is to um, choose someone who would seem not likely at all, just to reveal his power and his glory yeah. through them. That's a good point. And you see the same thing in 1 Corinthians. It says, brethren, consider your own calling. And we know the Lord uses the things that are not and so on. So it's good because that's how we got in. <laughs> God allowed us in and we don't have anything going for us. <laughs> okay, so I, we did verse 17. Okay, we're on 18 now. Fame in the things of the gospel spread through all the churches. Probably uh, the churches of Macedonia heard about whoever this person was and realized that his praise, yeah, in fact, according to my notes here, the New King James has a more literal translation, whose praise is in the gospel, his passion was to preach the gospel. Paul, according to Garland, Paul identifies both the men who accompanied Titus as messengers, apostles, by the way, of the church, 823. This implies that they were not chosen to go to Corinth to help them complete their donations, but to represent the churches of Macedonia and Jerusalem. They accompanied Titus now to assure anyone who might question the integrity of the project that is being carried out in a virtuous and an unimpeachable way. By the way, that's, a, that's another one of these times where the term apostles used in a non-technical way. It's important to realize that the people that are teaching about Latter, or claiming there was Latter-day Apostles, they were saying, oh, there was at least 25 Apostles. And they'd count these guys. But the word Apostle has a range of meaning, and it can be technically an Apostle appointed by Jesus Christ, who's an authoritative, who's a foundation of the church, or it can mean someone sent on a mission. It might be just as practical as bringing a gift of money as it was here. So it doesn't mean every time you see that Greek word, you have more Apostles. So that's important to realize. Verse 8, verse 19. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. So the person whose fame was in the gospel was appointed by the churches in another word, grace again, charis, that's our theme, gracious work, this gracious work is the collection destined for Judea, and it's said to show our readiness as prothumia, administer diaconeo, or get our deacon, present passive participle, to be administered for the glory of, by us, for the glory of the Lord himself. So there's two purposes here, one for the glory of the Lord, and two to show their goodwill, to show that they care. Their prosumia could be translated goodwill or readiness or what have you. I have another citation. Somebody look up 2 Corinthians. Where should I do it? You did one, right? Uh, 2 Corinthians, okay. Alice, 2 Corinthians 12, 18. Troy, Acts 3, 3 through 6. Joanne, Philippians 4, 18 and 19. Dick, 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. 
I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take any advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Yes. So he was pointing out that no one was taken advantage of and that they could manifestly see that this was all gospel-centric, done with integrity, and that there was no reason for them to be doubting Paul or his motives or that of Titus and the others that were sent to them. I have a citation here from Barnett. Paul will send to Jerusalem those whom the local church has approved. The assemblies will elect their delegates, but the apostle will send them, thereby providing external and apostolic sanction of those chosen by the churches. Um, They're sent to Jerusalem. This is further amplified with this gift which is being administered by us. A clear reference to the collection destined for Judea, The visit to Corinth was but the first stage of a much longer journey. In Corinth, he and the other brother, verse 19, would be joined by Paul and would travel with him by ship to Syria. Paul's return to Macedonia was not part of the original plan being necessitated by a Jewish plot against him. Although Paul is silent about the other brother in regard to the collection, we can infer that since both are apostles of the churches, both were chosen not in the first instance, to go to Corinth, but to go all the way to Jerusalem of the collection, presenting the believers of, representing the believers of Macedonia. So these two are called apostles, even though they're not apostles like Paul is. They're messengers, sent ones, whose role is to go to Judea with the collection. And because they were appointed to do this by the churches in Macedonia, they thereby represent those churches And so this was another way of bringing a unity between a possible Jewish church and Gentile church. Because these people will say, this is from our churches, and we care about you here in Judea. We care about your well-being. So that's what that was all about. And the next cross-reference was Acts 6, 3 through 6. I'm going to read 7, 2 after this to show the result of this. Uh, Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom whom we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying they laid their hands on them. Then verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Okay, that's the uh, narrative about the appointing of servants, deacons, by the apostles. Now, let's talk about that for a moment, because that's what's going on here. Is that important? Well, yes, it's very important. Have you ever wondered, when you read 1 Timothy chapter 3, that you have qualifications for elders... And you have similar qualifications for deacons. Not identical, but similar. Now, when you also read the narrative in Acts 6, you can see that they took this extremely seriously. So you might look at it on the surface and say, well, just doing practical things like this is, wouldn't require any special spiritual qualification. Some people might think that. But that's not at all what the New Testament sees. 
The New Testament sees that the practical administration for the benefit of the body was so important that you needed people that had spiritual qualifications to do it. Why? Why? Because these so-called practical things can be the thing that shoots down the church if it's not right. This is where corruption and greed and abuse and all sorts of things can happen if you don't have the right people. And so when we we talk about elders, which are responsible for the spiritual well-being of the church and responsible for what's taught from the pulpit and responsible to make sure the gospel goes out and all these sort of things, when when we describe deacons, that is a very serious and important thing, and you're looking for mature, qualified people there as well because that can cause, I mean, it has to be done in a godly way as well. And we can see that from the passage that Troy read, right? Amen. So, and when these things don't happen, we've got ample evidence throughout church history and in our own day of all the malaise that comes into congregations when things aren't done according to the biblical pattern. Then we had Philippians 4, 18 and 19. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Aphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Epaphroditus had been sent by the Philippians on a mission to minister to Paul who was imprisoned. And this caused Paul great rejoicing. One of the themes of the book of Philippians is joy and rejoicing. Why is Paul rejoicing? Because he needed the gift so badly? No. Because the fact that the gift came showed that the Philippians were still standing with him in the gospel. In other words, the giving of the gift was a, was more than just money to help Paul or whatever else was given, but it was, it was giving goodwill. It was giving a, a, a testimony to Paul that we support you. Even though you're in prison, we believe in the gospel that you preach and we support you. And that's why Paul was so excited about this man, Paphroditus, who risked his life, who was in a bad physical condition, but he, and he took a perilous journey down a, uh, this road that was known for being a place where one would be robbed, and he came to Paul, and so Paul saw great good in that gift that came from the Philippians via Epaphroditus. And then we have 1 Peter 4, 10, and 11. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom thing belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And there's another passage right there that Dick just read that shows the high value of what may seem to be an ordinary thing, serving. Let me give you more example from that. If you want to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I want to show that the Bible doesn't consider what may seem like a less spiritual thing to actually be less spiritual. We're going to talk about the charismata. Verse 6 of Romans 12. We have charismatas, gifts. 
Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace, same word used repeatedly in Second Corinthians chapter 8, the grace given to us, thus let, let each exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith. There's a, there's a translation issue here, and I don't agree with the New American Standard. And um, prophecy is, is one of the more important gifts. We know that because it's something that we may all do, according to 1 Corinthians 14, and it has to do with bringing out valid implications and applications of Scripture. And this verse is one that shows that. Because where it says the proportion of his faith, in other words, I have a lot of faith, I should prophesy more, I don't have a whole lot of faith. It sounds like a subjective version of faith. But in the Greek, it doesn't say faith, it says the faith. Okay? And the word for proportion is where we get our word analogy in, in uh, English. So the way I understand this, is that prophecy has to be according to the analogy of the faith. And that would be that it's hemmed in based on the faith that's once for all been delivered to the saints. And that we only can prophesy according to the analogy of the faith. And I, have, I found a great essay on this by Charles Hodge uh, defending this point of view that I, that I believe. Okay, so prophecy is... Uh, hemmed in by the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And then it goes on and talks about his serving, in service and his serving, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading. I'm just thinking of those different terms here. I'm not reading the whole thing. Lead with diligence, showing mercy, with, show, with uh, cheerfulness. So these charismata show us that some of the things that seem rather ordinary, like giving or showing mercy or what have you, or serving, are actually spiritual gifts that are important to God. And that they should be exercised with the same care as one who is an elder or a preacher or what have you. Yes? Well, wouldn't that be an, an, a good application of that? I remember a lot of people probably weren't here in our old building but in the old building we had, we were sitting down in the central city, and we had a big uh, step uh, stairway, like right by the Institute of Arts, and uh, we would have an outreach where we'd have one or two preachers doing the prophesying, exhorting with scripture, but well, we had a small congregation, there was more people here than we were at the church at that time, and some people would be making burgers, and some people would be plugging in plugs, and some people would be playing guitars, and some people would be <laughs> out doing stuff. And it was the entire exercise of everybody, even though it was one central preacher, that was an expression of the gospel working in everybody's mm -hmm. heart. Mm -hmm. And everybody was unified in doing something together that furthered the pro proclamation of the gospel itself. And you didn't have to be the best preacher to actually have a lot of impact. Absolutely. Uh, I guess Dick has something, too. That's true. So if a church is gospel-centric and continues to be gospel-centric, then everything everybody does from any, anything you could think of that's required to keep the gospel going out, all of it is just very, very important. And, and everyone's participating together in the gospel that ultimately goes out, even if it only goes out through a few voices, yes. 
I'm missing a connection. When you were talking about uh, it was prophecy that it spoke of, the proportion, the analogy of, his faith, of the faith. Yeah. Okay. And you said it was kind of like limited by the bounds, whatever. How did the other gifts relate to that? Well, it doesn't, that. it isn't, it's just talking about different gifts. So prophecy is listed first because in Paul, Paul's estimation, it was obviously the most important. If you read, if you read, for instance, 1 Corinthians 14, where he talks about gifts there, he preferred that they prophesied. Okay? So it says he that speaks in tongues edifies himself, but he that prophesies edifies the church. And then he required that prophecy be judged. Now, how exactly is prophecy judged? I'm saying based on this passage, according to the analogy of the faith. So if somebody says, I believe this is what is a valid implication of the scripture here that God says we need to do, because here's where it says, that can be judged. Because somebody can look at that and say, no, that's not biblical, so it's not a valid prophecy. But somebody gets up and says, well, thus saith the Lord, I think the Lord wants us to do this or that. Well, how are you going to judge that? There's no way to know. But doesn't this also have implications that if I'm sincere in my giving and I'm giving to a false prophet or I'm giving to a ministry that's preaching if you give more money you're going to get wealthy or I'm giving to somebody that's proclaiming a false message, I'm sinning even though I'm not sinning intentionally because the reason those are charismata, the reason those are blessed gifts, the reason those are gifts that are springing from the hope of the gospel is because the message that's actually going forth is the gospel. If I was supporting a false message, there is no blessing in that. I'm deluded and I'm actually uh, being held captive to do the will of the enemy in spite of myself. Yes. How many here, you don't have to raise your hand, but you can if you want. How many here can look back on their past and see that they worked, gave, sacrificed, and so forth for something that turned out not to be the gospel. Most, well, over half of the people here. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, the, the, the text from which, okay, God wants us to, to prove that. The text would be implications from passages that says things like in Ephesians, it says, have no fellowship with the unfruitful work of darkness, but rather reprove them. Okay? And if, if we give our blessing to a false message, we are participating in that false message. Well, okay, how bad it is depends on how far departed from the gospel it is. All right, not a perfect church. But there's the gospel and there's not the gospel. All right, and if the gospel is preached, then we can rejoice even if there's vain glory, because Paul did in Philippians. So if the gospel is correctly preached authoritatively according to the terms of the new covenant and is laid out there consistently and you gave to that, that's not a sin, even if it turns out that there's some other dumb stuff going on. It wasn't so great, all right? But if, you're promoting, but if you're putting your time, effort, gifts into something that's not the gospel, whatever, Roman Catholicism. <laughs> well, now you're trying to get me into another debate here. Yeah, I would say this. 
Okay, you brought up Arminianism. They can get the gospel right if they want. And if they do, then I can rejoice. Okay, if they, in spite of the fact that they believe that in human ability in some way, still believe that the universal call is what it is, repent and believe the gospel, here's Jesus, here's what he did, turn to Christ, then I can rejoice in that, because that's the gospel. Even if they have a different understanding about why some people get saved and others don't. But if they believe in human ability and then they preach human ability, I kind of rejoice in that. Because human ability never saved anybody. Right? Only the gospel does. But you could look at the same thing. It would be hyper-Calvinism. They say, well, if only the electorate, they're going to come to God anyhow, so we don't need to preach the gospel. I wouldn't support that. I wouldn't give them one cent. Absolutely. I would not serve. I would not support. I would not give money to it. What we want to support is the gospel. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. If you're tired of hearing it, you're in the wrong church. Tell you right now. <laughs> so I know, I mean, everywhere you go and, and people will say, well, you know, exactly what is the gospel? And I know that there is the gospel light. And then there's also, shall we say, the gospel, meaning, of course, good news, but without the bad news. So, you know, I personally, I believe, you know, you have to pre, you have to do better than a Sunday school lesson of the gospel. If we, if we consider it to be the most important thing, such as, yeah. well, I just believe in Jesus. Is that the God? Well, no, that's, I suppose if you define it, if you define more, more than just saying believe, but we have to believe, you know, God's holiness and, and, and uh, wrath and so forth to provide the context for the gospel. And I think so many churches, including the one I grew up in, it was all about, you know, believe in Jesus and go tell others about him. Now, I suppose you could say <laughs> that's really gospel light, but that's what a lot of churches are just teaching. Okay. So where do we draw the line? Yeah, when, we, when we're talking about the gospel, and this is biblical, this is how Paul talks about it. It includes all of these corollary ideas. It's, it's a shorthand for all of this. Even like Jesus came in the flesh doesn't mean just Jesus came in the flesh. That those three words, Jesus came in the flesh, five words. <laughs> it, it's talking about the whole doctrine of Christ, the incarnation. So what's, what's all related to the gospel? The blood atonement is, is part of the gospel. God's wrath against sin, propitiation. Resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is, is right. Justification by faith is part of the gospel. Yes, sanctification is part of the gospel too, because that's also gospel-driven. And you, the person of Christ, the person of Christ, who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? Why do we need him? What does he expect of us? That's, I, I keep myself to those four points because it forces me to be fully preaching the gospel. Okay, what people need to know. So all of these things are gospel-centric, and that's what we're talking about. So if you just want to look, just think about Paul's epistles. How often does he talk about the gospel? Okay, so today's lesson, what we learned, was that when Paul wanted to send somebody as a representative to take a collection all the way to Judea, he found somebody whose fame or praise was in the things of the gospel. He didn't find a businessman. Now, you could find a businessman whose praise is in the things of the gospel. I'm not here today to just discredit everyone as a businessman. But I'm saying that the gospel has to be the key issue. And even when it comes to money, the gospel is what's important. Because if you get off on that, you'll get off everywhere else. 
In the long run, it will be a very, very bad thing. So um, thank you. We'll see. Today we're going to talk, introduce the Ten Commandments, 1030 upstairs. Help us with the cheers. Thank you.